0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra. My passion, calling, and job is really all about blending together holistic practices with real evidence-based science to help people around the world cultivate more optimism, success, and resiliency. You won't want to miss this new podcast as you'll get to hear from elite athletes, recording artists, couples, and maybe even my toddler. So if you're into arming yourself with some new practical happiness tools, join me on Mondays for your morning optimism dose. Oh, and don't forget, things are looking
1: up. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, the show that delivers helpful, actionable career tips and advice so that you can be more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin. And did you know research shows we are missing 50% of our lives? Why? Because we aren't paying attention. The answer is cognitive training, also known as teaching your brain how to tame your wandering mind so that you can pay attention and focus on the things that are important to you. On today's episode, we'll learn a one-minute practice from neuroscientist Dr. Amishi Jha. Additionally, she'll teach us three types of attention and why U-shaped stress is great for attention. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. research shows that we are missing 50% of our lives. Why? Because we aren't paying attention. That's where today's guest, Dr. Amishi Jha comes in. She is a neuroscientist and author of Peak Mind, and she's dedicated her work to figuring out how can we harness the full power of our attention to better meet all that life demands. Dr. Jha, which I know you told me, just a second go to call you a Mishi, but well, Mishi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. Please call me Mishi. I feel like you work so hard for the doctor, but <laughs> you, <laughs> um, but it's been, it's been almost, you know, 25
2: years. So I think I'm okay yeah. now.
1: <laughs> so it's, you, you don't need it as much. Okay. So, well, You also had a TED Talk related to attention. It was called How to Tame Your Wandering Mind. And it had over, or it's had over 5 million uh, views. So clearly people are probably aware that they have an attention problem. I know I'm not like, this isn't new information necessarily to me, but we don't know where to start. So I'm curious when you say, I'm going to study attention management. Uh, is that because you recognized you had your own attention challenges or is just like you started to realize that we were <laughs> we were going downward with our attention and someone needed to help us?
2: No, I mean, my interest in attention precedes anything personal, really. It comes from my interest in the brain. And I was always interested in figuring out how do you get, like, what controls how the brain operates? And we know that attention is this very powerful function that transforms the way the basic processes of the, of the brain work. So it's a modulator, we might say. So if you, wherever you pay attention can reorganize all the other systems in the brain. So that, that's where my interest was. And I was really doing research in that topic, looking at brain imaging studies, brainwave recordings to understand the mechanics of it. The attention management issue actually did creep into my life, I would say, in a big way, to the point where I looked to my field and my own expertise to say, what do I know about this in terms of how I can guide myself to pay better attention? And I came up empty, actually. And so my lab's research sort of pivoted toward trying to get a solution. Like, what do we do for people who have a lot of different demands in their lives and want to have full access to this capacity? And what we landed on, which surprised me because we looked at many things was mindfulness meditation, which we can definitely talk about. But it was not with the intention of wanting to figure this out. It just happened that I had all the tools and a personal interest to move to the research program in that direction.
1: Mm -hmm. So the secret to paying attention differently than what most of us are doing today, I, I assume is mindfulness and meditation or are I guess when people think about, okay, I want to Be better at focusing. What do they get wrong compared to what actually works that you found in your research?
2: Well, one of the things is just this notion of I want to be better at focusing. So I should practice focusing. I should just focus more, tell myself, focus more. That tends to not work because what we're not paying attention to is where our attention actually goes when we're not focused. So it's this deep, not, I wouldn't say deeper, but different insight that is essentially saying we need to know moment by moment where our mind is, so that we can get it back on track. And to understand that being distracted, having mind wandering, it's just the nature of the mind. There's nothing wrong with our brain or our mind um, per se, because we mind wander. But if we want to help ourselves because it happens a lot or it's interfering with our ability to work, we can train to not just pay attention better, but really get a handle on where our attention is so we can guide it back. Mm -hmm. And that's where mindfulness training has a very handy set of tools to really train for that specific aspect.
1: It's interesting because I feel like I'm pretty good at focusing. And I always, especially now as a working mom, I've kind of made the joke that like, because my time is so limited when I am working, I'm like a machine. I can get so much done. And it's almost like I have to be super focused because I don't have all these hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah. So two questions, I guess. One, is it true if you have less time, you are better at focusing? And my second question is, I bet you there's a lot of people listening to this who are like, my day is full of nonstop interruptions, the Slack channel, the text, the kid walking in, the spouse walking in, the lawnmower going off. So, you know, for the person who is having that experience, what do they do too? Exactly.
2: So let's start with the first one. And I wanted to just say you know, given what you're describing, I mean, I think you're the success story and I was the not success story. So what the kind of circumstances that actually led me to want to pursue attention was my own crisis of attention when my son was not even three. Mm-hmm. I was a, I just started my lab. My husband was in grad school. We had bought this hundred year old fixer upper and it was like full throttle life, right? It's like yeah. everything was happening and it's everything that we had worked toward. We wanted all of this. And what, I, what was my wake up moment was really sitting down and trying to read uh, every night, you know, no matter what, given the busyness of life, I had a, made a commitment to myself that before he goes to bed, I'm going to read him his favorite book. And so I was committed to doing this at one point. I remember he, I was reading him the same book. Cause of course at that age, they always want to read the same book. It's like yeah. the hundredth time or something. Yeah. <laughs> and he stopped me in the middle of it and asked me a question about what we were reading. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And to me, that was like a real wake-up call because it was like, how am I not here? I'm here. I want to be here. Where am I? Right? So in some sense, it was the real clear feeling that my mind has a mind of its own. I don't know where it is. Well, I know it's not here. I know it's probably at the lab or thinking about the next contractor coming by or, you know, when am I ever going to talk to my spouse since he's always in class while I'm working? So it was everywhere else but with my son. Even though my intention was to be with him. So, you know, I think that the, what you described is sort of the opposite of that, which is that I know my time is limited. I'm going to be efficient with it so that all the other things are done when they're supposed to be done. And that I'm fully present for what is needed when I'm back with family time. I mean, I applaud you for being that way. For me, it was, <laughs> I mean, not it doesn't an always thing go that way. <laughs> in some sense, what you're describing is known in the literature because what we know is that stress and performance have a very reliable relationship. It's this thing called the Yerkes-Dotson law. And there's very few laws in psychology and we're not like physics. So the Yerkes-Dotson law is basically this upside down U, which says, you know, think about the, the, the X axis is stress level. So you got low stress, high stress, and then the Y axis is performance. And as you go up this upside down U, more stress, better performance. And then there's a sweet spot right at that tip of the, the the U that's basically like this is the exact right amount of stress for me to be fully engaged, feel fully committed, and able to meet the challenges successfully. When we push past that, we start declining in our performance, and that's what we hmm. experience as distress. So in many ways, it sounds like just from your your anecdote that you know you found that sweet spot and, and it is sometimes the time pressure will help us. If you've got an assignment due in a month, you're probably not going to work on it diligently tonight, even if you've got a spare hour as the deadline a- approaches, your motivation to do so increases. So just it is important to remember that there is not it's not that stress is bad and not being stressed is good, is that the right amount of stress and we call you stress is the spot we want to be in. And unfortunately, if we have a moment or a place where we feel like, you know, this is the right amount of stress or engagement I need, if we experience that same level for too long, it's going to turn into distress. So we might be able to be fine. You know, we're going full throttle. But if somebody said, oh, by the way, you got to keep doing this for another six weeks, we're going to be Yeah, they'd
1: burn out for sure. I'm kind of like that too. It's like, I can do it because I've got these short windows, but if you gave me a 12 hour window to do that, I couldn't do it.
2: No, it's too much. So I think, but these are just important things to know, just sort of the nature of attention. And, you know, I really appreciate what you said about time pressure. Like, I don't have time. I don't have, I don't have a minute. I mean, I just still remember when my kids were little, I would like go into the bathroom and close the door and be like, this is it. This is my only time I peace. And their little fingers would stick yeah. under the door. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of us moms, especially working moms, can understand that. And, you know, your heart like is just like, oh, I want this, but it's really hard. So part of the thing that's kind of interesting about the direction that my work has taken is that I started getting interested not just in high-stress professionals like me, but how does this apply to other groups where their life is stressed? Meaning what they do has a professional kind of life cycle where it's not going to let up. And for them, if they have an attentional lapse, it's life or death.
1: Yeah. Like the brain surgeon. You know, I like to say we're not performing brain surgery, but what if you are performing brain surgery? You know, you've got to be on your (laughs) A-game. You've
2: got to be on your A-game. Your mind can't wander. So, but anyway, just, just to say that even though it was not consequential for me, I mean, not knowing what was written on the page wasn't going to have any long-term consequences for my son or me. It got me very curious about what to do about this because it seemed like the problem was not mine alone. And what we ended up doing is uh, going through and kind of systematically and rigorously setting up research programs where we tested exactly that idea. What's the minimum effective dose? And thankfully, those pursuits have led me to solutions that I think all of us can engage in because we don't want to spend, we don't have an extra minute. So what is the least amount of time? But it's still effective. It's not so little that it's actually not doing anything for me. And that was the goal that I had is let's figure out something reasonable, but doable.
1: Yeah. Okay. So tell us your solutions. How do you tame the wandering mind? I know also you said there's um, some vulnerabilities that keep people up at night. So please share your treasure chest of goodies with us.
2: Well, I think let's just start in with like what we're dealing with. And remember, my expertise is in the brain science of attention. That's kind of what I know about. So everything I talk about is kind of from that perspective. And before we even talk about solutions, maybe it's a good idea to even think about what attention is because the solutions themselves are really an attentional workout in a short in the shortest amount of time that we've found to be effective and once you understand why you'd want to work out in this way it makes a lot more sense and frankly at this particular moment you know when i started moving my work into the direction of mindfulness in the early 2000s nobody had ever heard of it yeah now a lot of people have heard of it and it's almost like we're at the point where people like, Oh, not that.
1: Yeah. I think think it it falls into that bucket of like wellness where people are like, is this bullshit or is this real? Because sometimes the lines are getting blurred when so many people are promoting it.
2: Yeah. And I think that it's both bullshit and real depending on what is
1: actually done.
2: (laughs) I hope my work is moving on the side of real and and, and not complete crap because um, we are actually taking a very rigorous and objective look at what's going on and putting it to the test with objective brain and uh, performance metrics. So that's certainly the intention is we, that was the same point of why I said, even finding the minimum effective dose, I could tell you, Oh, you know what? All you need is three breaths and you'll be fine, Yeah. but the data doesn't support that. So anyway, just to say that at this point, when you use the term mindfulness, it might even start feeling like a burden, like, Oh yeah, that's that thing I'm supposed to do. My whole orientation toward mindfulness and why it even entered my labs work. And then I'll, we'll get into the, um, brain systems of attention. I wanted a way to figure out how to train attention that people could do every day because you know the reality is the brain has the capacity to change itself and we can exercise it so that it is changing in a way that is better just like the body. if we tend to the body and exercise it physically efficiently, you know maybe it's an awesome peloton workout or whatever it is that you do efficiently, you your body will be benefited. We don't have an answer for what that is for the mind and for attention. So that was the hunt. I look to mindfulness as one of the solutions as cognitive training, not really wellness, which is why it's so interesting to me that the, the term is sort of like launched into our public consciousness from this other perspective, which sure, it can help you feel better, but really it's doing something beyond that, especially when done in the kind of ways that I want to describe. So anyway, so you're asking me about what solutions there are. And I think that maybe to start out just to describe how this thing called attention works? Would that be? Yeah, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, usually when people use that term, and we've already been using it, uh, it really tends to mean focus. Like, am I focused or not? Or am I paying attention? And focus is a really important part of the attention system. We formally call it the brain's orienting system. I like to use the very handy metaphor of like a flashlight. Like we focus, like just like a flashlight, you direct it. And actually, just like an actual flashlight, wherever it is that you direct your attention, you get more information from that part of space or whatever. And you don't have to just direct it to the external environment. So if I asked you, for example, to think about what you had for your last meal, you just directed that flashlight using your memory to the internal environment. Or if I said, direct your flashlight to the sensations that are happening on the bottoms of your feet, You could easily do that. So we can move this flashlight around and things that were not in our conscious mind in the moment, all of a sudden can become present there. So it's a very powerful capacity. It ends up that same flashlight though can be directed on purpose, but it can also get yanked around. So if you get a notification on your phone, or there's a specific ringtone you have it's going to get pulled it's going to be magnetically pulled yeah you know, let's say you have like a special ring for your child or your spouse like uh for sure no matter what's <laughs> happening you're in the middle of the most intense interesting podcast interview but you're going to go there and why is that because our attention was designed to advantage our evolutionary success i mean it's the result of the brain success story so of course things like potentially threatening. Uh, novel interesting self related stuff is going to grab our attention, which actually keeps us on our social media feeds for way longer than we care to admit but it 's the same process, so all of that has to do with this one type of attention, which is this narrowing and selecting, but that 's not the full story regarding attention. It ends up that there 's a uh, two other systems: the next system is the exact opposite of the flashlight, which I call the floodlight, and essentially, you can think of this as broad receptive, and having to do with what's going on right now. So if you're, you know, another way to think about the system, it's called the alerting system. It really is about kind of being alert and vigilant. If you're driving down the road and you see a flashing yellow traffic light, usually that means something's up, right? Like pay attention. There's some weird traffic pattern. Maybe there's school nearby, whatever. You don't know what you should be paying attention to. It's not like your flashlight's going in any particular direction. You're just staying kind of broad and receptive because you might have to take action like right now and then you want to be able to do that. So, you know, snapping to action based on that availability of your attention is very important, but extremely different. It's about really noticing instead of acting. And then the third way to think about our attention is actually kind of connects everything together. It's it's something I call the the juggler or the executive system. And I use that term executive or the field uses that term executive to really Be like the executive of a company. The executive's job is not to do every single task of an organization, but to ensure that everything's flowing, kind of all the balls in the air. If you use that juggler metaphor, no no balls are being dropped. So that system really guides us to make sure what we are doing, our behavior aligns with our goals. And so now, now that we know kind of those are the three main ways our attention works, when we have challenges with our attention, something's wrong in one or more of those systems. So when we say we feel very distracted, right? It's like partly what's happening is the flashlight may be all over the place and we're not even aware of it. Or we've forgotten our goals, right? Or we're trying to keep our mind focused but there's an internal pull of something even more pressing or problematic. So these that that's I think it's important to know that it's not just you, you don't you feel kind of icky or foggy and there's no reason for it it actually is tied to these things. So knowing that, now comes the, the good news. This, the, that was pretty much like just the way it kind of works. And the good news is that we can train for this and we can have a better flashlight, one that we can direct willfully. We can have a better floodlight, if you will. We can know better when our mind is somewhere we may not want it to be. And that executive control can also be improved. So we're more likely to have our behavior and our goals align. And that's actually where mindfulness training came in. And, you know, it's funny because we know something like mindfulness meditation has been around for millennia, right? It's sort of part of spiritual traditions, really Buddhist roots. And I always wondered, like, this thing has endured time. Something's got to be useful about it. You know, I wasn't, I was kind of a skeptic regarding meditation myself. But when you now look to see that, oh, the reason people may say it's good for your wellness, it's a way to achieve peace, is because the thing that makes us feel not peaceful is when our attention is all over the place, when we're yanked around and it feels like everything is too much. So connecting those dots, what my lab has been doing is getting granular. Okay, how is it changing these systems? And what are the best practices we can offer people in a time-efficient manner? So I hope
1: that was helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just, I'm being quiet because I'm just listening and taking it all in. And I mean, the cognitive training, I think this is so fascinating to your point. There must be something to this because it's been around for a long time. I mean, I know the number one challenge for me is I'm... I get to this point where I'm like, okay, I want to do it, but it's short lived. I don't seem to last very long with like a mindfulness practice. I might have a day here and a day there. So I guess like, how do we start this? And then is there a way to do it in a way where you actually stick with it? And I'm sure once people get results, you know, they want to stick with it, but it takes time to get those results. So there's always that kind of weird gray zone too.
2: Exactly. But just to relate it back to things that we all know and that we all probably have struggled with, but have hopefully figured out a way to overcome physical fitness and exercise. It doesn't feel good when you start. Of course you want to not do it if you don't have to, but we have to figure out a way to incorporate it into our lives if we, because we know it's beneficial. So I think all the solutions that you already know how to implement, not you in particular, Lauren, just in general, that we know how to implement, we got to use those to our advantage to be able to do the same thing, with mindfulness. I think a lot of times though people don't know why they're doing it. They just know they're supposed to. Yeah. And that's what was, and they also don't know when they're not, there's nothing wrong with the way that they're progressing. It's like a lot of times I'll hear people say, yeah, I stopped doing it because like my mind's just too active. And I'm like, <laughs> you're human. You yeah. You know, but the reality is 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not on the task at hand. That's the baseline. And we were built for that. So if you find that you tend to have mind wandering, welcome to your human experience. You know, it's totally normal. But once you even know that, you're like, okay, so the fact that my mind wanders is not a problem. No. So then now I'm doing this practice and my mind wanders. What do I do about that? Well, the first thing is the fact that you noticed your mind wandered, it's a win. It actually is the very first success of the experience. But most people don't feel that way. They often badger themselves and say, ah to stay where you need to stay. So I just want to kind of say those things from the outset, but just to go back to connect the dots between these systems of attention and mindfulness practice to kind of deepen the understanding of why we've chosen it as a successful cognitive training tool. So let's just think of like a standard, a very foundational mindfulness practice. And I describe it in my book. I I actually describe it because I, I want to highlight the piece that I think it really helps with. I call it the find your flashlight practice. But traditionally it's just called mindfulness of breathing. So it's not that the the actual steps aren't really innovative, the, but the understanding of why this is so good for your attention hopefully will help. So what you do in that practice, just, let's just do like a, you can do a 10 second version of it, but you find yourself a comfortable kind of quiet space to start. You know, you don't want to, in the same way you want to support yourself with the right exercise equipment and right outfit when you're doing physical Exercise, do the same thing. Make the circumstances and settings supportive of what you're trying to do, because this is really about exercising your mind. So you get a quiet place and dedicate some period of time. As I said at the outset, it could be very short three minutes. Like if you think you can do three minutes, start with one minute. Start very small. But whatever your goal is, eventually I ask people to work up to 12 minutes. That seems to be the sort of successful number for actual uh, performance and attentional benefits. But for starters, You're going to dedicate some period of time. And then for this period of time, the goal is going to be to pay attention to breath-related sensations. So we sit down, we lower our clothes, our eyes, take the sort of, you know, you're doing something serious yet self-supportive. So kind of an upright alert posture, and then check in with the fact that your body is breathing. You're not controlling the breath. You're doing nothing. You're just broadly receptive to experiencing your body breathing. Now, just that we don't really do that often. That's not a typical thing. We breathe all the time, but we're not paying attention to it. So we experience our body breathing. And the first step is really notice what is most prominent in your current experience for breath related sensations. It may be the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils and maybe your shoulders, whatever it is for you, kind of pick it out and then For this period of practice, that's going to be the target for your attention. That's where you're going to keep that flashlight focused. So now for, let's say you do it for a minute, you're going to keep that flashlight right on those breath-related sensations. Let's say it's tied to, like, maybe it's the tip of your nose, wherever it is for you. Focus there and just breathe normally. You're just, you're not manipulating your breath. And the next step in the practice is notice when your mind wanders. It's not saying if you happen to be that weirdo whose mind wanders. It's saying notice when your mind wanders. People have been doing this for thousands of years. Minds wander. Notice when your mind wanders, and when it does, gently return the attention back to that target. So I kind of break it down into really just three steps of what we're doing: we're focusing, we're noticing, and redirecting, and then we're repeating that. It's not going to be one and done. You're going to mind more often if your mind is sort of a normal mind, and If you think back to those descriptions I gave regarding the systems of attention, we're tapping into all three, right? We're actually focusing the flashlight. We're exercising the flashlight. We're keeping that floodlight broad and receptive. And then that executive control is stepping in and saying, ah, your goal here was to be on the breath. Get back to that. Don't be thinking about your vacation or your to-do list. So we're constantly over and over again, exercising those capacities And the reason I call it the find your flashlight practice is because one of the big wins of that is that you know where your mind is more in a more granular level moment by moment. And if we don't know where this precious brain resource is, there's no way we're going to be able to use it effectively. So that's the starting point.
1: So you do this practice to, and you start small and work your way up to 12 minutes because the whole goal is that you're training your brain to be able to wander and then come back to the thing that your target of what you want to focus on. So in real life if you're trying to focus on an email you're trying to write and you have all these distractions, your kid comes in, the phone rings, this other thing is, those are okay, but you've your brain is, your cognitive training is strong enough that you can deal with all that stuff and then come back to the target, which is that email. That's absolutely, you got a hundred percent. A plus. A plus on the test. Yeah, I love, well, I took a whole page of notes. I have a, an open book quiz happening right here. Um, yeah. That is, that's amazing.
2: You're not so dysregulated by the fact that interruptions and distractions occur because you are developing a trust in yourself.
1: Yeah, right? yeah.
2: And usually what happens is if somebody comes in and starts talking to you or, you know, mom, where's my socks or whatever it is, it's like we just feel like we're totally thrown off, right. and we can't even feel like we can get our mind back. But this gives us that comfort of no matter where my mind was, when it's time for me to focus on this target, boom, I'm there. Doesn't mean yeah. I will to be back again.
1: I always feel like it gives you the confidence to be like, I can have a distraction come at me and I and I don't have to lose it over the fact that this didn't get done. Sometimes I find what can push my stress level up is if I'm in the middle of doing something, I'm afraid I will forget where I was or what I was doing and it will just slip through the cracks completely, you know, you know. All of a sudden, you've forgotten to do this thing that was important to you. And so I feel like this can kind of help create some confidence in yourself that, okay, something might slip through the crack every once in a while, of course, but you have the skill set to remember it. Your brain will be able to go back to it.
2: Yeah. And I would say, you know, that's, you're bringing up another really important topic. So I would say the distraction may make things fade away. And there's a whole other part of the, in my book, I talk about this sort of mental whiteboard we've got. That is where we keep all the stuff that's currently in our mind. It's it's formally called working memory. And working memory is very limited. It is like a whiteboard, except it's got disappearing ink. So if we want to <laughs> an idea on it, we got to keep rewriting it over and over again. So it's not your imagination that it feels like, oh, the idea is fading away. And the important thing is that when our attention is directed toward that content, it rewrites the item. So paying attention can actually help you keep those things in your mind, but also just use regular strategies, something I call cognitive offloading, write it down. Like don't drain your working memory more than you need to. So the confidence comes not just in like, Oh, it'll fade away and it'll come back. It may not, but it's that I'm trying my best to hold it in my mind now. And I have tools to get it down on paper if I need to, but then I can return to it. If a distraction truly pulls me away, it's just, it's really the confidence in returning back that I think is really key. Yeah. Because oftentimes we think, oh, what's the point? I'm never going to get back there. No, you can, you can actually begin again. So anyway, I hope that helps relate why, you know, these systems of attention have the capacity to be trained with something like mindfulness practice.
1: I mean, I think just to know that the wandering mind is normal, first of all, because I think we're always kind of assuming that it's, you know, the fact that we're scrolling Instagram too much is the reason why we are like this. And to your point, it's like, well, we were, we're, this is part of the human experience. This would have happened whether the Facebook and the Instagrams and the TikToks existed. Maybe they're taking more of your hours in a day than they need to. But I think especially right now, I know I've been kind of in this place of when your home is your work and, and everything kind of molds together. It's like sometimes I, I think the the ability to have attention and focus feels like, I don't know, it's just getting further and further away or everything just starts to blend more and more together. So I think it's really nice. It almost feels like this is, like you you get to take a break out of your day and be like, okay, let me have my moment to do my cognitive training, just to your point, just like you would your physical training. I think we're in a really good place right now in society where we're talking a lot more about mental health. And I I hope we start to think about cognitive health and and as part of mental health more, you know, as part of a daily thing. And I think for kids, especially, I know some of them get to like have mindfulness as part of their like curriculum. I'm like, gosh, don't you wish that had been something we had when we were growing up? But whatever, <laughs> it's yeah, always better no, for I No, it's great
2: to see that. And I, actually, cognitive training and mental health training, you know, mental health are both extremely intertwined. Yeah, this is a really important thing to actually also remember. So, you know, we talked about those three systems of attention. In many ways, something like depression is a disorder of the f- flashlight. Because what is happening is the flashlight is getting pulled by certain depressogenic content and it cannot be yanked away. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it yeah. that way, like, oh, okay. It's not just the negative content. It's that the system is driven to be stuck on it. Yeah. Then, and in fact, mindfulness has been quite successfully used in relapse prevention for severe depression.
1: Wow. So Wow. And, That's amazing. And then,
2: yeah. And then same thing goes basically, I'm sorry, similarly with the floodlight. So there are disorders, for example, in which everything feels like this. you got to be hypervigilant. Like everything is a potential danger. I better be fully aware, ready for anything. That's when it's not just being vigilant, but hypervigilant and not just alert, but alarmed. Yeah. And that happens in disorders like anxiety and PTSD. So again, when we think about it from the attentional training point of view, if you can actually have that floodlight be a little bit more grounded and steady, and not so in overdrive, it's gonna be helpful to you.
1: Yeah. So I just wanna recap the flashlight practice so that everyone has this as their actionable takeaway. Start by finding a comfortable space. Dedicate one to five minutes to start, but gradually work your way up to 12 minutes. This is something you would do daily. And then what you want to do is pay attention to your breathing sensations. Check in with your breathing. Whatever you notice, that's your target. And then- wait, wait, wait. Oh. sorry. I, <laughs> I, I didn't
2: pass the quiz this time. <laughs> no, 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 you got it. But I just want to make sure that we're clear on what checking in, not thinking about your breath. Okay. Just which sensations are most prominent. This is really about not having thoughts. Sticking to sensations. So keep going. So well.
1: really yeah. So noticing noticing the sensations and then redirecting when your mind wanders away from the sensation back to the breath. The, again. Oh, yeah. the breath. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. So it's focusing on particular breath related sensations, noticing mind wandering and redirecting back to the breath at the same target. Over and over again. That's the rep. That's the what we, you know, my military colleagues call it the push-up for the mind. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. So you do. I mean, I love this. This is uh, one to five minutes a day. I can do that. I mean, I really. I and I guess the you can't do it while you're doing something else. Like you can't do it while you're walking, for example.
2: You can do it while you're walking.
1: Oh, okay, okay. I like that even more. But here's what I would
2: say. Now the and by the way, this is an infinitely flexible practice because the goal is to have a target, just like you were saying earlier, like, oh, now the email is your target. When you wander away, you come back. Well, now what you could do if you're walking it, there are formal practices called mindful walking, where you're going to focus on the sensations of your foot touching the ground, like every aspect of it. You have to just really make sure that you don't get lost in thought and don't return. Yeah. Right. So, Yeah. so as long as the intention is, I'm really focusing on the sensations of my feet touching the ground and I'm walking in a way that allows me to do that. No problem. And then your mind wanders, you return it. Oftentimes we would give active practices like that one, when we would work with populations that, you know, sitting still is not going to be their, their go-to move. So adults with ADD, for example, we really did a nice job offering them movement practices and they loved it and they could do it, but it wasn't like forcing yourself to kind of be still if you don't need to.
1: Amazing. All right. Well, this is extremely helpful. Tell everyone where they can find your book, your website, if they want to follow up with you.
2: Sure. Yeah. And the book offers, you know, this is just the intro practice, which is a very good one, but there's other practices to help build all our cognitive training for attention. My book is called Peak Mind, and um, they can learn more about us and our work in my lab at amishi.com. So if you remember my first name, A-M-I-S-H-I.com.
1: Amazing. Amishi, we will put all of the link to your website and your book in the show notes as well for people. And thank you so much for joining us today and just the really important work that you're doing and uh, the fact that you're paying attention to attention management. We all are thankful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. If you love our show and want to support us, please consider rating and reviewing the show. You can learn more about Dr. Amishi at her website, amishi.com and buy her book, Peak Mind via the links in our show notes. One thing that pairs really well with mindfulness is motivation. Check out our latest online course, Mission Motivation. You'll learn what intrinsically motivates you and build your own motivation practice in just 28 days. Link to Mission Motivation is also in the show notes.